Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in 'm dapper Dan Austin and I own every issue of amazing spider-man including the annuals which definitely count and I am mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I too own every issue of amazing spider-man but Dan those annuals they, they just don't count and I'm tired of you trying to legitimize them but this is the show and we have to keep doing it. So continue on. Yeah, fair enough. And I, I don't even know of an annual that's forthcoming. So, you know, like <laughs> it's, maybe it's, it's editorial. A <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I welcome everybody to the amazing spider talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for another of our patented review episodes of the amazing spider talk yeah if you want to swing along with us on our journey through spidey's past present and future subscribe to amazing spider talk on your favorite podcast app every other week we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show provided we're we're doing the flagship show but we'll, we'll get there we'll get there and sprinkled in between we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest spider-man creators of yesterday and today so this is the perfect time to start listening Yeah, like Mark said, we're going to get to that stuff. Mark and I are kind of actively brewing our Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, mid to late 80s stuff that we've got cooking. In the meantime, we've got like old seasons of our show, our Essentials comics, where we talk about some of our favorite Spider-Man comics and all the classic interviews that we've done. Um, A lot of them are getting bumped over to our amazing spider talk back issues feed. There's uh 68 episodes in there as of me talking right now. So Mark, that means we're actively working our way towards 400 episodes in the main feed, amazing spider talk back issues. That's the podcast feed that has all of our oldest episodes in it. But in the meantime, today on the show, Mark and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, Number 13, also known as Legacy Issue Number 907. This issue was written by Zeb Wells with interior and cover pencils by John Romita Jr., inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Marcio Menez, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This issue was first released on November 9th, 2022. Mark, why don't you give us a summary of this issue for those who maybe read it and forgot or those who didn't read the issue at all? I mean, let's be honest, even if you know what happens, you want to hear my summary, and I am here to deliver on what the people want. So, 
We are at the hospital. Norman Osborne calls for a nurse and demands she calls the police. His employee is in trouble. Come on, just call him your friend, Norman, and totally blow up Twitter like it's a Tesla just driving around. Anyway, Spider-Man is fighting two <laughs> hobgoblins. And yes, it's still Ned Leeds and Roderick Kingsley before you Gavazdan conspiracy theorists get out of hand. We get some exposition recapping as Spidey dodges gliders, blades, and other attacks. Oh my. Spider-Man's audio link to Norman gets broken and the nurse tells him there's nothing more he can do. And he gazes longingly at a Silverhawks cosplay ensemble. Don't know what Silverhawks is? Google is your friend. Back to Spidey. He tells Ned he believes in him, but Ned believes in blood. That's a tough argument. Spider-Man's glider bites the dust and he crashes to the ground and gets tag-teamed by the two hobgoblins. It looks like after 907 issues, the amazing Spider-Man is about to die at the hands of the hobgoblin, impaled by the mace head of the glider when the gold goblin shows up. New series goes on sale Wednesday, kids. Norman takes control of the situation, but Ned still wants to fight, which causes Kingsley to betray him by telling him he no longer has use for him. Spider-Man saves Ned Goblin, who thanks him by trying to kill him one last time until Norman delivers the knockout blow and a few more for good measure. Norman's team is already doing damage control, and Norman thanks his assistant for bringing over his computer so he could observe Spider-Man. But wait! No one from his company brought the computer. What? Peter goes to see Betty, and then we get our second shock, the Winkler. Hey, device was not found in Ned's study. So that brings us to the final shock. Roderick is actually in the Winkler device, and a voice behind him tells him that it's all part of the plan to bring Norman back to his true self. And that voice belongs to the Goblin Queen. Damn you, Gavastin! <laughs> I'm so happy to have been right about that. Uh, I don't think it's a, a great amount of prognosis. No. I will say, starting this off, I may have to quit reading this book because Spider-Man says, quote, I was never a Hobgoblin fan, end quote. I'm sorry, Spidey. Uh, you're wrong. Hobgoblin rules. And I think I mean... this art proved it. Shut up, Spider-Man. What do you know? The Hobgoblin's the man. Mark, what do you think of this arc overall now that it's all done? This was a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's three issues. We had a, a semi-mystery angle that gets resolved pretty quickly. You know, we got some good action between Spidey and the Hobgoblin. I mean, I don't know, man. What more could you want? This is this is this is fun stuff. This is a fun comic to read. I don't know what else to, to say about, you know, in terms of overall thoughts, besides the fact that I'm having fun reading the Spider-Man comic. This does not feel like a chore right now. Uh, what, what, what about you, Dan? Yeah, I feel very similarly. I felt like re it was like reading a great 80s comic. And, you know, I think if you look back on the Roger Stern run, there's a handful of issues that are real standouts that like we've talked about on the show that are cla all time classics. But a lot of them are really just kind of like well-crafted, ongoing Spidey comics with maybe a villain of the week or like a hobgoblin appearance here and there. And this felt like that, like it didn't need to like burn down the house or whatever, you know, it is just a really well told story. And I said it before on a previous po uh, podcast and I'll say it again here. 
this was the right story at the right time, right? This is looking at Spider-Man's rogues gallery or history and finding the right thing to move the main story forward, which really like, I think by the end of this story, and we'll definitely talk about this. Well, as we talk about this issue is this was really a story about what would it take to push Norman Osborn over the edge and uh, you know, to drop his guard and, Boy, you just find the hobgoblin, you you write it in a smart way, and that's the right tool to make that happen. And you don't need six issues. You can I mean, I bet you could have done this in two issues, really. But I felt like three was appropriately paced and you know, it did what it needed to do and it was over. And it also seeded a couple of subplots for the future, but it didn't felt like that took up the main story. It was like well placed, well executed. Spider-Man doesn't have a ton to do, but fine. You know, we're going to be, you know, he's a pawn in the story and that works just fine for three issues of a story where he feels overwhelmed. So is this a top tier Hobgoblin story? Probably just for its focus alone. This felt like it like had something to say. It did it and we're out of there. And, you know, I really appreciate that. It It's really efficient, effective, good storytelling. You know, I mean, it, it is funny that you mentioned, like, it's just like, you know, do we focus enough uh, or, or does Spider-Man have enough to do here? And and I, I, I get that criticism. I don't disagree with it. But at the same token, I feel like, you know, compared to maybe some past creative runs that we've gotten where there there has been this problem where the it feels like the focus isn't on Peter or the focus isn't on Spider-Man. Like, you know, I, I, even when Spider-Man isn't necessarily pivotal to the to the to the plot and to the action, like I, we, we are still very much in Peter's head. We're still very much in Spider-Man's like, you know, suit, if you will, kind of seeing the action from his perspective. So even if he doesn't necessarily need to drive the action forward, he still feels very much a part of this comic. And it's not like he's a, he's a bystander in his own comic. So I I, I know you weren't saying that, but I've, I I just wanted to clarify that for, you know, those playing the home game that I I, I just feel in general like. You know, we're 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 clearly trying to advance other storylines with Norman, which we'll get to later on in the show. But like, I I appreciate that we're just not completely sidelining Peter here. I think he's appropriately placed. Like, we're meant to feel kind of like, I mean, the audience is a little bit ahead of him, right? We get to see the kind of behind the scenes, like a villainy, especially at the, at the reveal at the end of this issue. But like, for the most part, this. This issue made Peter feel like a like a observer caught up in the action, but like that's good for a mystery, right? And feeling overwhelmed with all the things that are going on makes mysteries exciting. I thought it really worked. Like if the whole run was like this, then I w- would be complaining about it. You know, I, I I think Peter's in this just enough, and even the way John Romita Jr. draws it is from Peter's perspective, and we'll talk about that later in the episode when we talk about the art in this issue specifically, which I don't think was perfect, but I think it does a number of really smart things with how it relays action in the latter half of of the issue. But let's start off with the big thing, which is, you know, I think we talked a lot last episode and I think frankly, you were probably annoyed with me no. <laughs> talking as much as I did. Oh no. You should see the the n- number of response we got to it of people laughing about our dynamic in the previous episode. You know, I this is not to like gloat like Dan was right because <laughs> victory um, lap. <laughs> I I don't really think it was like a like a like a Hail Mary guess 
on what was going on here, given the cover of issue 11, which is to say, like, I'm kind of happy that I was right and that I guessed it early, not because like of my own like ability to pat myself on the back, just because like I and we've talked about this before. I would rather guess like a mystery ahead of the like of where the writer wants you to figure it out. And it makes sense then be so thoroughly confused by the mystery and get to the resolution and be like, like I didn't understand. I didn't guess this and it makes no sense. Like this mystery resolved in a way that I was like, Oh, all the pieces fit together now because I could guess it. Like it's because it is narratively coherent. And I think that that was really important here. So like, you know, we're talking about the queen goblin being behind it all and the continuing development of that. Like, how did that reframe your reading of this and enjoyment of the mystery? So to kind of second your point, there, there is, <laughs> look, we're, we're talking about superhero comics here and, and you know, with, with no disrespect for, for Dan and, and your eight dimensional chess that you play when you read these comics, which usually involve looking at the solicitation six months in advance, um, <laughs> you know, with, but like, it, it, I mean, in all seriousness, like there, there is nothing wrong with laying out a storyline that, you know, based on the clues and the evidence that you put in the comics Responds to the response to that in, in the resolution. I mean, like this is not like this does not need to be too complicated here. Like, what 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 are we trying to to, to reinvent here? I mean, like you know, when, when you think about some of the more unsatisfying conclusions in terms of mysteries, and it comes to Spider Man or, or or anything, the 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 issue is always you know it's kind of goes back to like what Tom DeFalco said when we talked about the initial Hobgoblin mystery, which was like, well, you know, like when it comes to a mystery, you can't you can't cheat the game you know you 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 have to you have to give give the people everything up front in order to you know kind of peel back the 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 mystery there and reveal something worthwhile and if you're just like throwing random stuff against the wall and then being like ha it's none of that it's this instead that's unfair and it's not fun it takes the, it takes the reader out of it because it's they're, they're not playing a game they're just they're just you know, bystanders to the writer and the and the creators playing the game, and and I I have infinite respect for Zeb Wells and John Romita Jr. here for just telling the story and and having some semblance of a mystery, but being like like you know to your point, Dan, like it's all there. I, I you know I, I was probably giving you a hard time because I knew deep down like you are right. So I'm not going to offer a counterpoint here. So like, you know, like it was there, you know, so like, let's just go with it and, 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 and see how they, they, they bring it out. And I thought they brought it out effectively. So like, what, you know, why do we need some kind of crazy mystery that, that goes in all these different angles that ultimately doesn't make sense because we're just trying to trick people, you know, like no one is trying to trick anyone here. We're just trying to tell good stories and, that's what they did here. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say, like, I do think there is some lament to be had over the cover to issue 11. Like, like this ending could have been because I don't know that I would have, like, figured it out ahead of time necessarily if it wasn't so signposted. And I'm not sure why like that kind of error is made. I'm sure it has something to do with the scheduling of these things. But it seems like a real, like easy thing to flip like flip issue 13 and issue 11's covers you know and i know they're solicited way in advance but like 
I mean, issue 13's cover is also kind of a lie, having Spider-Man saving Norman from Hobgoblin, which is absolutely the other way around, (laughs) you know, in in this issue. Long story short, I I think that cover was a mistake, and, uh, you know, I I don't know how it came to be, but it's like such an own goal, even though I ultimately liked this, enjoyed it. Yeah, I think uh, because it's a Hobgoblin story, our uh, Spidey senses are a little more like raised to the switcheroo. So like the mystery revealed, it doesn't hit the same way. The tombstone one does whether or not we would have known about the goblin queen or not. Like the tombstone like twist was wonderful because I don't think we even knew like to alert our senses to a mystery or a, a, a switcheroo in, in that case. But I still thought that this was like plenty effective and thematically resonant with the run, which to me continues to seem to be about like the sins of the past, you know, coming after, you know, our heroes of the present and, you know, Norman not being able to escape those sins, which are like literalized and coming for him. Uh, I I think all that's been a a lot of fun. I do feel bad for Ned Leeds at the end of this day. I guess I would counter what you're lamenting here by saying that like, yes, I get that. Like you don't want to spoil your own storyline with like, you know, advanced covers and stuff like that. But at the same token, like, you know, you mentioned the tombstone mystery and just how effective it was, but like the tombstone mystery was essential to driving the plot forward. Like without that mystery, the plot doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Like why, why, why is Spider-Man being manipulated in this way? Because, you know, tombstone is fooling him. And, you know, da, 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 da. Whereas here, like the the whole mystery about the goblins and, and Queen Goblin, like, like, yes, it's it's part of the story. But like, I think the larger mystery and we'll get into the weeds of this in a bit. But like, the, the, the larger mystery is what exactly is going on between Peter and Norman here and what is Norman's arc, regardless of the fact that this was kind of spoiled like we still we're still seeing the layers being peeled back on norman that's the bigger intrigue here in this in this whole thing you know maybe the problem is we're we're, we're, we're you know you're focusing too much on the wrong mystery here like like does it does it actually matter you know what i mean like, like i mean to go back to my original point from last episode does it really matter that the queen goblin was behind this the whole time I don't know if it does. You know what I mean? Like the what matters is how does this how is this all impacting Norman Osborne and what is he gonna do to potentially reverse this trend of of do-gooding that he's that he's been exhibiting here? Yeah, I mean I, I do think it's a the, it's thematically important that it's the Queen Goblin that's doing it because she, like I said, is a literal manifestation of of his sins, right? Coming coming back for him and transforming him into the goblin. The the dramatic intrigue is you're right, not about like the Queen Goblin more than it is about Norman's reaction to the Queen Goblin. I, I agree with you on that. Um I do have some outstanding questions that I hope we get answered in upcoming stories. Like personally, if this is the last of a hobgoblin that we see you know, in the Zeb Wells run, I would be okay with that. I know I'm like the Hobgoblin's greatest cheerleader, but I also think like the Hobgoblin always runs a risk of pulling a nineties venom and being oversaturated. Like the fun of the Hobgoblin is that we wait a decade and then get a cool Hobgoblin story. And 
we don't know where Roger Kings is going to show back up again. I mean, this story kind of closed itself off, which is that she just used the hobgoblin as a tool to get what she wanted out of Norman and then erased Kingsley's memory of it all, you know, by, by the story's end. So if we never see these characters again, I'm okay with that. I mean, maybe I'd love to follow up on Ned Leeds and jail and stuff. I don't think we need Roderick back in the story as much as I love that character, but I do have a couple of questions. Like one in the first arc of this story, we saw the white rabbit selling all of this villain gear out of the back of like her truck. And my assumption based on the solicits was, Oh, she's working for the hobgoblin or something like that. You know, part of this whole costume ring that Kingsley was doing. And that was not a part of this at all, which leaves that question kind of up in the air is like, how was she acquiring all of this villain gear and is that like, like, was that an important plot beat that maybe was dropped at some point? And the other one is, you know, as much as we have been clarified, the Ned Leeds and, and Roderick Kingsley of it all, we were still presented with Ned saving Winston at the beginning of the issue 11, which, you know, makes sense for his arc, right? He thought that Norman was coming after his baby, Right. And that's the resolution to that. But then the end of that issue, we have that unseen character in the room with Betty where she's sleeping. It still seems weird to, to suggest, Oh, that that must've been Ned Leeds. Like looking back on that scene, even now it feels much more like queen goblin, Ashley Kafka manipulating Betty in some way. And so then the question there is like, to what end is that? Right. Like, does she want the baby in some way to like mess with Norman or whatever? It seems like there's something more going on there. And I imagine obviously the Queen Goblin's going to come back, but I wonder how Betty plays into that in some way. Do you think I'm misreading that and we should just accept that that was Ned or is there some other obfuscation going on? I think that's something we have to see. If they're going to resolve it or not, because I mean, you're right. I mean, it's like it is a it is an open ended question, but I I don't I don't get the sense from from this that we're going back there anytime soon. So I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not trying to dismiss it, but like, I, I, I don't know if they know and we may not know. <laughs> yeah. I, the only reason I bring it up is because I feel like every other beat was clarified. You know what I mean? Like. Like, yes, now we know why the Queen Goblin used the Hobgoblins because she wanted to use one of Norman's own sins against him. And yes, it's an incredibly convoluted plot for a villain to do to just get Norman to save Spider-Man and 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 enact violence. Like there's probably an easier way to have done it. But this is comic books after all. Like, you know, like these are how these characters work. But to by the end of this issue, Peter returns to Betty and, you know, she tells him about this, like, you know, the Winkler device not being found or whatever, but there's never a mention of like what it meant that she was in the room with, with Ned, you know, and what that was all about. So anytime like someone as smart as Zeb has been about plotting this book and doesn't close a plot line off, it makes me think, that plot line is going to resurface. So I just wanted to put a pin in that, which is to say, I don't feel like that plot line was ever successfully closed off. 
in the way that all the other ones were. In the meantime, we can talk, you guys can talk about it in our Slack. So Mark, why don't you tell everybody about our Slack? Yeah, well, hundreds of listeners like you, and I'm pointing at you, Dan, hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on the Slack. It's like Twitter, but less crazy. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. For $8 a month, you get a check mark. Wait, no, sorry. Dan, what am I talking about here? Well, it's funny you say that, Mark, because I'm actually like really pushing the Slack right now because like Twitter is falling apart. You know, I, the Slack really is like really replicates. Well, first of all, I think Slack has always been better than Spider-Man Twitter, but especially now that Twitter is evaporating, like I want to keep in touch with all the friends that I've made on Twitter um, that I think are actually cool Spider-Man people. And for me, the best way to do that is to get them to come join our Slack. So if you do follow me on Twitter or you like wanted to engage with other Spider-Man people in a non-toxic way, and maybe you had a very curated Twitter presence that didn't see all of that and you want to replicate it. I mean, the Slack is where it's at and it's only gotten more crowded over the past few uh, weeks as Twitter has slowly melted into the ground. So this week, for example, there's been a hot bed of feelings, but respectfully feelings about this new Dan slot led Spider-Man run. Um, You know, we've got Carlos in there who is like the biggest Dan slot fan on earth. And he is like loving this run. There are other people uh, that are absolutely hating it and equating it to a boring zip line where you're moving forward, but you're bored the whole time. Um, I mean, look, there's a lot of thoughts, but everybody's being respectful and and, and cheering on our love of Spider-Man. And that's what makes the Slack so fun <laughs> is we can share what we think and not hate each other at the end of the day. At least I I speak for myself. So if you want to join this awesome Spider-Man community, just follow the link in the description of this episode and come join our Slack. I've even got it pinned to the top of my Twitter page so that you can find an easy link to come join us there while it still exists. You know, maybe you'll come and you'll see I'll have a blue check mark and realize that I've completely sold out. I mean, Dan, you might find what you're talking about to be fun. Personally, I find to be fun is like pretending to be different brands and have them say inappropriate things about their their products. So that's, you know, unless the Slack could start giving me that, I don't know. It's a hard sell. That's all I'm saying. Like, <laughs> I mean, maybe I could verify myself and become the Spider-Man Twitter account and just start tweeting about how much I hate being married to Mary Jane and just like truly end the internet then. I mean, um, can, can can we talk some more about CGI and Marvel movies? Because that's where, our, you know, that is where Marvel Twitter is just really grabs me and, and makes me want to pass out. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I, I can't think of a moment in the spider slack where we've talked about Marvel CGI, except to talk about the people working on it being abused and underpaid. So like, that's an actual conversation that I want to have. I'm not opposed to that conversation. I just don't want to see flash Thompson walking past the subway grate and have it be psycho, you know, like hyper analyzed again. That's all I'm saying. Like, can we, can we, (laughs) 
Can, can we move on from that? Anyway. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yes. I, 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 am, I am airing grievances if it's not even Festivus. <laughs> well, maybe I'll create a channel just for you, Mark, so that uh, you can take out your Flash Thompson uh, CGI uh, grievances on the Slack. So There you go. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's get back to talking about Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, Number 13. Okay. So... We talked about the Hobgoblin reveal, but I think, you know, the kind of secret tragic protagonist of this arc, maybe not so secret, but like, I think this issue really like ultimately framed it is Norman Osborn, right? And his big act here of heroism, saving Spider-Man. But like, to me, this was the moment the wheels came off the train. Like, we're going to look back and go, this act of heroism was the, the domino that knocked Norman's downfall into uh, action. And, you know, that's a tragic thing to see someone do something good, but ultimately in the service of their complete destruction. And, you know, who knows? It might it could go a completely different way. But that's the signpost that was put here is like, you know, through his actions, beating up Ned Leeds, which like granted he's acting on behalf of a lot of Spider-Man readers and wanting to punch Ned Leeds a bunch of times. To me, I think the success of this arc and maybe a lot of Zeb Wells' run so far is like, one, the comparison there between Ned Leeds and his cell phone that he destroyed and how much that worked for you. You know, like, did did this feel like a culminating moment worthy of Norman springing into action and starting to kick off whatever story we're headed into next? And Mark, I'm going to ask you, do you think that Wells and his team pulled it off? Before I get into that, let me preface this by saying, well, first of all, you know, to our, our, our last conversation, I mean, if you really want to have good, good quality discourse on Twitter, let's talk about, like, let's use the words good and Norman Osborne in the same tweet. <laughs> when this whole run started, you know, the, the, the whole premise was this whole what did peter do and and the fixation was immediately on peter and mary jane and what was going on there and this paul guy etc etc like that was where the fixation was this was where the 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 teeth gnashing was going to be and then you know there, there was this little like like drop, I don't know if it was at the very beginning of this arc or maybe the arc pre- uh, preceding this where like, you know, it, it basically came out that like there was something that happened between Norman and Peter that kind of initiated whatever Peter did and what impacted Mary Jane. And, you know, frankly, like it, it, that was kind of the aha moment to me because then it became very clear that like, you know, despite what what certain fans want to make this run out to be about, which is like, oh, it's about breaking up Peter and Mary Jane. It's clearly that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is we are we are getting the, the long game is about this Peter and Norman relationship and, and this journey that these two characters have gone on, these these two polar opposites, you know, mortal enemies that have come together for some reason. And now now that they're working together, like how how is this going to impact this? And 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 to your point, what is the tragic arc of Norman? You know, it, it's kind of like the another variation of what we got 
during the Dan Slot run of like Parker Industries. It's like we we knew, you know, like people like fixated on the fact like Peter can't be successful. He can't have the he can't be a millionaire. What what is going on here? And the fact of the matter was the, the, the whole point of the arc was like, how is this going to fall apart? And I feel like that's what we're getting here with Peter and Norman. It's like, how is this not going to work out? Because it can't work out. Like it's just not in the in the nature, and that's where the journey is. Sorry, well, you said you saying that has reminded me like at, towards the end of the Nick Spencer run where I said, like, if I never got another Norman Osborn story in my life, I will be happy. And yet I am very caught up in this story. I asked myself that and I think it's like, well, because they're finally doing something new with him. You know, and yeah, I I think Norman's turn is genuine here, or at least I feel like like uh, Zeb Wells has sold it as such. I feel that I I I have bought into to Osborne's turn here, uh, whereas I don't feel that was the case during the Spencer run. It was you know he got hit with a magic a magic gun and all of a sudden didn't have sins anymore, and and like that just didn't make sense and didn't didn't add up. Whereas now like. You know, between the character's words and actions, he he seems to be reformed. But you know, the tragedy is coming, and that's and that's where the drama lies. That's where the intrigue, as a reader, lies is is to see how how is he going to fall. If I can compare it to Alfred Hitchcock, and this is something I like to pull out all the time, especially if you're one of my students in my film classes, which is the difference, like the bomb under the table story. So the the bomb under the table story goes that there's two people talking about baseball at a table and they talk about baseball for five minutes, a kind of boring conversation that I'm sure Mark, you would love to have uh, <laughs> given your Twitter presence. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, you have this conversation about baseball and it's kind of boring and asinine and, and whatever insider thing. And then suddenly a bomb under the table explodes and kills both of the people. Right. And you get as an audience watching that, it would be very boring unless you're Mark and suddenly surprising when the bomb goes off. And what you have is surprise for about five seconds and that fades into meaninglessness. But the other way to tell the story is to show the audience the bomb under the table first and with a five minute countdown on it and then show the people discussing baseball. And the idea is the longer they talk about the baseball, it just doesn't, the baseball doesn't even matter. It's not about the baseball anymore. It's about, please stop talking about baseball and get out of there, right? And suddenly you, it, it creates suspense. And yes, you, you lose the surprise, but you gain the suspense, right? And I feel like so many of these Norman Osborne stories post his original death have been a surprise. Like, ha-ha, Norman was behind it all, all along. Ha-ha, Mason Banks is Norman, you know. Ha-ha, like, there was always something. But here we have genuine suspense because we all know that, like, the longevity of this Norman Osborn character is not to have him be buddy-buddies with Peter Parker. Right? Maybe. Maybe that's where gonna, they're going to surprise us all in that, right? But it's genuine suspense because you're waiting for that bomb to go off. So and what you're saying, so what you're saying is the Mets every year are like a bomb on my soul, 
And the less I tweet about, <laughs> wait, no. <laughs> Make Sorry. whatever metaphor you want, Mark. Uh, keep going. Your keep relationship going. with the Mets is unhealthy, and we're all watching you spiral until a bomb goes off. Keep going. Uh, I, what I mean is, I think this is like a more valuable Norman story because I'm I'm genuinely in suspense about it. Right, like that bomb could go off at any time, and I think here we're seeing the fuse get lit. You know, and and. You know, before I thought like, oh, you know, Norman can go either way, but I hope that he's good because it would make for better storytelling. Now I know like, okay, this is this is about to be a loose cannon, you know, and and that's actually genuinely exciting for whatever's coming going forward. Now, do I have a lot of faith in the editorial team to not shove that story into a gold goblin book and not let Amazing Spider-Man address it properly? Yes, I have a lot of fear about that. As much as I think Chris Cantwell is a pretty good writer and that looks like a really exciting series that I'm eager to pick up, I would much rather Zeb Wells write the story of that bomb about to go off just because he's the one that lit the fuse. I don't want this to be an amazing Mary Jane situation where, you know, cool idea, (laughs) Kindred's getting her out of town and then someone else is running with it and doesn't know what the hell they're doing. Anyway, now I'm going on a whole other diatribe. But Mark, the original question was, did this moment work for you in the pages of this comic? Yeah, for the most part, I think so. I mean, like, you know, it's it's not perfect. To go back to my original point, I I I feel that Norman is sincere here. So so to see see his actions, to kind of see him to like take those extra hits on Ned that like, you know, like just like like the one too many to be uncomfortable. Like that worked. Like the, like that worked for me. Like like him punching Ned. Like I felt really uncomfortable in that. In, in in over the span of like what three panels, I I feel like the obvious downfall and tragedy that's about to happen here came out and was sold. Like 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 was it a hundred percent perfectly executed? No, but like I, I, I it was close enough where I'm good with it. I, I'm I'm on board with this story. I agree with you. I think I think like especially over the spread out over the 12 or 13 issues that we've gotten, like the impression is almost more important than the immediate moment, which I think the idea that has been uh, seeded and, and built up to really works for me. I think there's something in the the immediate moment here that didn't entirely work for me and the structure of this story. Like I think. One, we've had one too many repeated Spider-Man gets beat to within an inch of his life in an aerial battle over the past few issues. It just felt kind of like a repeat of the Vulture scenario, which like, uh, but with a heightened threat. And that's the idea here, right? It's like the water is slowly boiling, right? Peter was able to escape the Vulture by getting the costume. So the key thing that needed to be proven in this issue was that the costume couldn't save him. Right. Because if the costume saved him before and he couldn't get Norman's help. Right. Like this is where Norman needs to step in. And the thing that that didn't 100 percent sell for me in this issue is the true desperation that Peter was in. I imagine if this story was written more like nothing can stop the juggernaut where it was all about like Peter, like truly investigating every last opportunity that he had to thwart the hobgoblins. I think I would have bought into like my true final card that I have to pull is Norman Osborn. And it's the one I don't want to have to pull, but I, I feel like we didn't really explore the full limitations of his costume. Like 
throwing bombs and more spiders and, you know, bug. And a lot of that was here, but I don't, I don't know that I felt quite as like pit of my stomach desperate as like say nothing can stop the juggernaut. I know we're comparing it to an all time classic, but, um, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I why do, can't, yeah. why can't it be if this be my destiny, Dan? I mean, come on. No. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, that's another great example, which is like, like in, in that story, it's truly like about Spider-Man, giving it his all right. And here, like we get a little bit of that and I'm sure there's like, you know, I, I love the clever bit with him shooting the top of the you know water tower and slinging himself around and bug getting destroyed in the air. Like all of that was properly dramatic. And I definitely like held my breath when Ned held his spiked glider over Peter. Like, I mean, there's so many nice touches, but I don't know that the desperation truly like, was it of the level that I felt like this is the climactic peak of this decision that Norman is going to have to come in as beautifully executed as it was on the page. Like, and then which mean my own reading is like, I, I just didn't feel a hundred percent sold that like, this is the moment that uh, above all moments that Norman needed to come in. Like, I don't know if you felt it in terms of Norman's decisiveness. I, I, I do, you know, to go back to, the point I was making a few minutes ago, like I do feel that moment came across in, in his interactions with Ned, because it was like it, it, it was very clear you were seeing a character who had been been genuine and been sincere and trying to be better all of a sudden just kind of un, unleash and unload. And, and, and maybe like the scene would have been better if you actually kind of had been inside Norman's head. Um, but instead, we're kind of just seeing it from Peter's perspective, even if we're not necessarily in Peter's head. You know, that that kind that that element of the drama is missing. But like, I I, I still feel like there was enough there there um, to kind of sell the idea that that Pete, that Norman is clearly like teetering on the edge here and, and is like, you know, one more one more step away from totally breaking bad again. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I I just want to reiterate. I think it's really good. It's just not an all time classic, which which is like a really lame thing to say. I I I understand, you know, but I, I you know, like I, I feel about moments where I was like truly on, like if this whole arc was designed to get us to this moment, I feel like the design could have been a little sharper to like make us feel even more desperate. I, I understand that fighting two hobgoblins is pretty threatening. But there was just something about it like that, like I, I, I wasn't super scared. And maybe it's just I'm, you know, cynical comics reader that knows his hero is going to get out of it. Well, what about what about the artwork, Dan? What, what, what do we what do we what do we want to say about good old J.R.J.R. here? Yeah, I, I thought this was like like uh, in terms of I don't know if it's pencils or, or Scott Hanna's inks, but I thought in terms of like figure drawing on the page, this was amongst his sloppiest um, especially in regards to like the hobgoblins, like early on in the issue, there's some pretty kind of like rough sketchy outlines, like, you know, and so uh, I, I think in terms of just like craftsmanship, this felt like the most pushed to deadline, which like, you know, we talked to John Romita Jr. And he described his style as deadline style. And so like, uh, that's how I always couch it when I look at it. D do you agree with that? Like uh, assessment of, of the comic? For the most part, I, I felt like this issue was kind of lacking 
the 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 sizzle and sexiness of some of the previous ones. I, I I don't know in the moment when I was reading it if I was feeling like it was quote unquote sloppy, but like it wasn't it wasn't visually memorable. How about that? And and it, it, it we did kind of feel like we were recycling some visual beats to to those who didn't quite understand my reference earlier. You know, I, I was joking about the gold the gold goblin costume. I mean, like I don't know, like. The design of that is kind of meh to me. I, I'm not feeling it, you know, whatever. I still love JRJR and feel like, you know, better days are ahead. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, even if I'm, 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 you know, poking at it, like JRJR, I think there's a bunch of really cool images here. There's one of like the hobgoblins chasing Spider Man from like behind in silhouette that was memorable to me. The, the sequence of bug getting destroyed, I thought was like really brutal and, and wonderful. There's a great image of like a patented JRJR of the multiple Spider-Man and one image of him like flopping on the ground with the trail of blood artfully spinning around him that I thought was really great. I mean, like, look, you know, take any JRJR comic there. You're bound to find some miraculous visual in it. Like I'll say at first, the first time I read this comic and this is definitely a comic that I've warmed on the more I've, I've read it over the week. Like the, when I first read it, I thought, Oh, this action is really incoherent and hard to follow. I kind of actually like have come to really appreciate it. The, the kind of way that it, it, he is framing it from Peter's perspective and what it would be like to take on two hobgoblins at once. The images are kind of like a lot of the, the action scenes are these scattered close-ups and and when we get to like Peter's perspective where he's trying to control the action, we the, the so-called camera pulls back and you get these kind of more structured images. But then like when it's close up, there's fists and capes and blood and you can't really make out who's doing what. And I imagine that's what it would be like to fight two hobgoblins simultaneously and the colors start to invert. And I think all that stuff is really um, interesting and ultimately leads to a really nice reveal with the gold goblin in that like double page spread of him blasting across the page and interrupting the chaos in a clean image. And so like, I think that was all like highly designed by JRJR and my discomfort with it is kind of intentional, right? It's, it's meant to make me feel like I can't keep up with the action because that's what Spider-Man is feeling. And that's what I was saying earlier when I said, I like psychologically that the artwork is kind of framed from Peter's perspective. You know, when you have someone like JRJR whose stuff is so controlled with the boxes and, you know, the least squared off images and stuff, when he does something like outside of the norm, like it has impact because he's so controlled in other moments. So that was something I, I appreciated uh, about the action in this comic. Do we want to give some grades here? I'm going to give this one a, a B plus. I, I think ultimately by the end of it, like it pulled off the, a successful ending that was riveting and moved the story forward in a big way. And the art, I don't think was quite there yet. I mean, even Menyes mixing up the colors of the eyes in the action scene um, didn't really help. This is a, a, like a, a overall thrilling three issue uh, run. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 right there with you. This issue is a B plus. I think this arc was a B plus. You know, like I said at the very very beginning, these are fun comics. I'm having fun reading Spider Man. I don't know why I need to justify it more than that. I'm not going to. I'm just having fun, Dan. 
Do we want to, speaking of fun, do we want to talk about adjectiveless Spider-Man for half a second or? Uh... <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I mean, last uh, review episode, we talked about our indecision of whether or not we're going to cover this book. Maybe we can kind of close that today, which is to say, like, I thought Spider-Man number two was a really bad comic. You know, I I think I was maybe less open to this comic than you were. If just to get into the sausage making, like you were like, no, let's give Dan Slot like, you know, more of an opportunity here. Like he's going to be on a different schedule. Maybe he does still have something to say. And my thought was always like, we got 10 years of Dan Slot. I like a lot of his comics. I don't like a lot of his comics, which is fine by me. Anyone who does 10 years, that's going to be the case. But like can we just move on? Like it's uh, like, it's time for this book to like find new voices and do new things. And this felt like a retread and, you know, so, but I, I try to go into it with open mind. I just think that this is bad comic writing and I'm so bored by it. It's just exposition dumps. And I don't really feel like it's worth our time talking about every week. Uh, your thoughts, you know, to, to kind of, go back to what I was just saying a few seconds ago. Like I, I do not find reading and or talking about this series at the moment to be fun being that this is a podcast that you and I Dan do for fun. I don't see the need to, to break these issues down, you know, the way we do with comics that we are having more fun with, you know, I could see us maybe checking in every few months to see how things are going. But like, yeah, I, I agree. Issue two was, was objectively a, a really challenging comic to get into. For those of you who listened to my reviews during the original Spider-Verse story in 2014 and when you know i would make constant jokes about secret scrolls and you know peter and cindy moon you know having pheromones for each other and whatnot i i i feel like this story right now has all of that kind of stuff and more in a bad way well maybe let's just see where we are when this when this arc ends right <laughs> yeah i mean none of the pheromones but this is like an issue of just secret scrolls like, you know, and, and, and like, I just cannot be bothered to, to read. That's not what I read Spider-Man comics for. And, you know, no offense to Dan Slott, like, you know, do your thing, man. But like, I don't want to elevate this as a, like uh, a comic over other B issues because there's better B title books in the spider office that are being put out right now than this book. And so like, it feels unfair to like, spend all this time talking about this just because slot's name is on it. So, you know, maybe it's the kind of thing, Mark, where like, cause I, I do miss our talks about B title stuff. I mean, if there's a book that concludes an arc and we both feel strongly enough about it to talk about it for a little bit, I don't think there's a, a, a lack of value in, in doing so, you know, but I think we always enjoy talking about things we love you know, more than things we're not liking. And if you're liking this, great, like more power to you. Uh, hopefully you don't want to hear us two guys just taking dumps on it uh, week in and week out or month in and month out. So enjoy it. And we'll probably check back in when the end of Spy the Spider-Verse has ended, whether that's definitively or not. I did not think this was a very good issue. Well, Dan, if if people do want to hear like some exclusive stuff that we talk about, what is one way they can do that? Yeah, sure. If you if you do find the show entertaining and valuable, we would really appreciate it if you would consider supporting us. That means 
you know, if you could recommend Amazing Spider Talk to a friend, I don't know how you might do that without Twitter these days because that's how I interact with people exclusively. I never talk to anybody. I, you know, like Twitter was it. And now I'm being robbed of my voice, so to speak. Uh, no, but um, really, if you like, like our show, like telling people about it would be huge. We are still a very small operation and we just don't know everybody that loves Spider-Man comics. I mean, heaven forbid, we don't know everybody, but if you do really enjoy the show, like something you can do is become a member of our Patreon. Yes, we can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show success to every single one of them. And we are constantly making exclusive content for our members. Yeah, patreon.com. Go there, sign up. It's like, you know, you get to be a monthly member of our little exclusive fan club. And it's only $3.99, the price of a new comic, often less than the price of a new comic. That gets you a month's worth of content uh, from our show. So that means getting these reviews of Amazing Spider-Man the very same week that their comics come out. If you're frustrated that you have to wait a month or two months to hear Mark and I talk about the latest issue, Patreon.com, $3.99 a month will solve that for you. Plus, every issue I've been doing a Patreon-exclusive live call-in each week with each new issue to discuss your thoughts on amazing Spider-Man. So if you've ever wanted to talk to me about these comics and tell us what you think and, and share it with our community, uh, that's an awesome way to do it is to just come join our live call-ins for our Patreon exclusive episodes. So, I mean, that's super cool. If you're someone that wants to be a part of Sp a community of Spider-Man fans, this is like a step further than the Slack. Come join the Slack, come join the Patreon. It's a great community. Yeah, and if you contribute $10 a month, uh, you get a blue check mark. No, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. Plus, every episode, we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. That is, of course, contingent on us doing a new season, which is going to happen soon, I promise. It definitely will. It definitely will. But we do know that this is a hard time for everybody, as it is for Mark and myself, too. So we do appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you do have the means, that $3.99, everybody, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. You can follow a link in the description to the show or go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com, where there will be a big you know, Patreon button and a big Patreon banner so that you can click on one of those. It'll take you right to it and you can play around with all the options there. All right, Dan, it is that time. Time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers for tuning in to this episode of the Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coast. Our video version is available on YouTube and was edited by Alex Galucki. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Busema, and Ray Sumzer. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and spider Madge, And our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton. So, Mark, until it's revealed that we've been subjected to the Winkler device by Marvel Editorial into loving this run, what's our motto? I won't do it. Hey, no. Uh, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment. Don't, don't miss the next installment.
buy all the variants. Buy all the variants. <laughs> I got six this week. <laughs>